0: Okay, first Peter chapter 3, let's jump in. I'm going to read the passage, verses 13 through 22. Uh, remember, just as a warning kind of a little bit to the night, is uh, we are speeding up in this series. We have been going one, two, three verses at a time, and now we're, you know, we're jumping into a lot larger chunk, which means I'm not going to answer all the questions that come from this passage. And as we read this, especially the second half of this passage, you're going to see that this is a somewhat obscure passage in some ways, and in my opinion, one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of Scripture. So let me read it, and let me give some explanation of how we're going to walk through this passage tonight. So 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 through verse 22. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18. baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him now as I said before we read the passage that this is can be a very can be a difficult passage to interpret. So let's lay down some ground rules as we think about understanding this passage. We remember that when we come to any passage of Scripture, that we must first be asking this ultimate question, what was the purpose and the meaning that the author intended when writing this? It is not, we don't come to Scripture with our ideas and read our ideas into the text or into the passage, but we must first ask based off context based off circumstances, what does this mean? This being this particular passage of Scripture. We must remember that words find meaning in a sentence and in context, and that every word is in a sentence, every sentence is in a paragraph, every paragraph is in a chapter, every chapter within a book, every book within a genre and a covenant, and all that is within all of Scripture. Then we start, and then we go out, and we then help us understand the meaning. And so, with that being said... With the best of the Holy Spirit's guidance this week, I believe the main point of Peter writing this, which is the main point of the sermon, is this: is to encourage his readers to trust the victorious savior amidst suffering. Trust the victorious savior amidst suffering. Every word within that main point in your outline is very, very intentional, with the first being trust, that when he's giving the stories that he's giving, especially in the second half, which we'll unpack towards the second half of the sermon, is that he's trying to encourage his readers that you can trust God, that you can trust Him, and that He is a victorious Savior. He ends the passage by saying, who has Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and has the right hand of God, with angels' authorities, powers having been subjected to Him. He is a victorious Savior because He has been resurrected from the dead. So you can trust this victorious Savior who has been resurrected from the dead admits the content or the context of His writing." which is suffering. He starts in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't answer the question because his readers would have all responded in a particular way, just like oftentimes a rhetorical question does. And the obvious answer would be, there's no one to harm us if we are zealous for what is good. Naturally and normally, if we're living out and behaving good and doing good to people around us, naturally, people aren't going to want to harm us. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? He's, he's wanting us to go. Well, no one. But, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, so the but there is assuming no one, but even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear, nor be troubled. Truth number one, we see the sovereignty of God as, as we defend this main point. How can we trust the victorious Savior mixed suffering? Because God is sovereign over our suffering. Verse 17 says this, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, Truth number one and truth number two are going to work together and can bring about a response that is almost negative towards God, if we're not careful. This idea that God is sovereign in our suffering will lead us to conclude then God can stop our suffering. And if He can stop our suffering, and He doesn't stop our suffering, then does that mean He doesn't, and then we might fill in the blank with, He doesn't love us, He doesn't care about us, we're really not that important to Him. Right? Because naturally if I have the ability to stop the suffering of my children, I will do that, right? And so naturally we read this rhetorical question that there's no one there to harm you. However, but sometimes it does harm and suffering does come for righteousness' sake verse 17 by the will of God. And we might have a negative response, but is not writing for the, them to have a negative response. He's writing to encourage them that this thing that is happening in your life is not out of just random calls and events, but we can trust the sovereignty of God. And it requires us also to trust the benevolence of God amidst our suffering. But the point is being clear from the very beginning, that Peter is making it clear that God is sovereign over the suffering. Therefore, we can trust Him in the suffering. This week, I was reading Genesis 42-45. through 45. Well, really all of the Joseph story, but I was studying and really trying to uh, slowly interpret Genesis 42-45. to 45. And it's, a, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture because it's the story where, if you know the story of Joseph... He is the favored of 12 sons by his father Jacob. And because of that favoritism and because of him knowing he's the favorite and him because of him gloating because he's the favorite, his brothers didn't like him. So what? They sold him into slavery into Egypt. He goes into Egypt. He's sold into slavery. And he comes to his master and he has favor with his master. But then the master's wife uh, betrays and manipulates and lies against Joseph when he was being... Uh, full of integrity, and because of that lie, he was thrown into prison. Once again, suffering in a way that he didn't deserve. He's in prison. He's in prison for a long time, for a few years. That leads to eventually him getting in contact with Pharaoh because of a dream, and because of how God used him in that moment, Pharaoh promoted him out of prison to be the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And his brothers, over a decade later, from them selling into slavery, and he's now governor, the second most powerful person in Egypt, his brothers come to Egypt begging for food. And guess who they come to? His brother. And Genesis 42-45 is the story of how um, Joseph meets his brothers and then reveals his identity to his brothers. Now, I just love this story because I would just love to be a fly on the wall when these 11 brothers... Meet Joseph, this guy who they think is about to kidnap them into slavery, and so they're begging for mercy. And then he goes, "Hey, I'm your brother." And then you remember you sold that brother into slavery, and so you're immediately going, "Oh no!" What do you know? I can just imagine this moment. But listen to me. The beauty of the passage is as Genesis forty-five five begins this long dialogue where Joseph Joseph tries to convince his brothers that he's not going to harm them because he understands that God allowed all of this unjust suffering in order to bring salvation to his family. And he's trying to explain to them all this suffering that has happened for years and years and years and years didn't make no sense, didn't make any sense why it was happening. But now I understand, hindsight is always twenty-twenty, and now I understand that God was sovereignly working through all of this suffering and all of this unjustness in order to bring salvation. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that all suffering is, is pointless in the sense that it's not deserved. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, we at times will find ourselves in places going, I did, did nothing to get here. Why God? And the encouragement that Peter is saying is, is ultimately we must know that God is sovereign over that and therefore we can trust Him. Which leads to truth number two, though, is the readiness of the saints. Readiness in a couple of ways. What do we mean by readiness of the saints? Read with me in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The first part to trusting him and being ready in our suffering as saints is to honor Christ as Lord as holy and trust him, meaning holy, that he is just in all of his deeds meaning His sovereign, sovereignty over your situation. He is holy and just in that moment. Therefore, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's, here's how... I said truth number one and two put together sometimes can give us a negative response if we don't understand God's holiness and His grace. Because here's summarizing what I believe Peter is saying in just these verses. Sometimes, who is there to harm you when you're zealous for what is good? No one. But sometimes suffering and harm will come by the sovereign hand of God so that you can be put in a position and have a platform in order to display the hope that is within you amidst that suffering. Sometimes you are where you are so that you can shine a bright light to the hope that is within you. And sometimes that's the only reason you're there and God's sovereign hand has put you there. And if we're not careful and if we're selfish in our relationship with God, we'll go not fair. That's not, I'm not okay with that. But then we're reminded by God's grace in verse 18 when it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ also suffered when it wasn't necessary that He might bring us to God. And in the same way, Peter's using verse 18 to defend what he's saying in the verses 4, that sometimes in God's sovereign hand He puts us in the situations we are so that we can display the hope that is within us, therefore be ready to display the hope that's within us so that we can bring people to God. See this? Therefore, we can trust the victorious Savior amidst our suffering. And I'm going to be honest, this whole passage in times is hard for me to digest this week. Because selfishly, I'm going, you know, I I think I'd rather just sit on the beach the rest of my life, right? I'd rather not. But what he's saying is, it's so important for God's glory to be displayed, and it's displayed best when suffering unjustly is matched with the grace of Jesus because it was the moment on the cross where the the most unjust suffering ever took place when the righteous suffered for the unrighteous according to this and according to Scripture, that Christ the righteous suffered in the place of the unrighteous so that He could display the grace. And in the same way, you and I will suffer as Christians for others for the only, simply, sometimes, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes for the simple purpose of displaying the glory. Therefore, be ready to display the hope that is within you. It's an important question. Are you ready? Are, are you ready? Are, are you ready that in every situation when someone looks at you, hopefully as you're w- trusting him amidst suffering, goes, how are you still joyful amidst the trial in your life? Are you ready to go because there's a hope in me and that, that, that is Jesus. That there's a hope in me that has changed my life. There's a hope not just in the ideas of Christianity, but there's a hope in the person of the Bible. That I don't just believe these things, which I do, but I believe these things and I've encountered the one that, these, that the book points to. That the hope is not just a truth as an, uh, as an abstract idea, but it's a truth that is a person. And His name is Jesus. Are we prepared to give that answer? See, most of the times it's just a simple answer, but I I fear that many of the times we shy away from the situations because we're afraid we're going to get a question we don't have the answer to. Guess what? It's okay to say you don't have the answer to that question. I I tell you, most of the things I've studied personally, besides the things my professors make me study, the things I usually choose to study is because someone's asked me a question I don't know the answer to. And and that's okay, and I'm honest enough to go, I don't know that answer, but I'm going to continue to learn, I'm going to continue to grow. But here's the point. I, I was the first time I ever met uh, Timothy Keller. I was in Mississippi, and it was he came to do a, a, a something to speak. That's what he does. And he was coming to speak at something, and there's this Q and A. And throughout a lot of his talks and through answering, he kept referring to things he had read. He kept referring to tons of scripture, uh, all from memory. And someone asked him, "Hey, hey, how do you find the time, like?" How do you find the time to do this? Are you just a, a brilliant, do you, or do you have like one of those photographic memories? Like, because I, I can't do that. Like, I don't have the time to study and learn and know the things you do. And Timothy Keller's response was very humbling. He simply said, what do you mean you don't have the time? You're telling me that there are people out there that, that are looking for the answers in the gospel and you don't have time to find the answers for them? And it was just one of those moments where are like, alright, well I'm not asking my question now. I don't, you know, like. But, but his, point, well, his point got to me. Because his point says, we find time for things that matter. And Peter is saying this matters. Be ready. Because God in his sovereign loving plan is going to put you in situations so that the gospel in you will shine. Will you be ready to let it shine? That's what he's saying. I pray that we are people that find time to, to study and to know and And just not even to have answers to every question, but just to have an honest answer of the hope. And the hope is Jesus. How can you glow with joy amidst suffering? Because Jesus is in my life. That I know Him, and He knows me. So truth number one, we see the sovereignty of God in suffering. We see the readiness of the saints amidst suffering. Truth number three, the perseverance of sojourners. Now, Truth number 3, 4, and 5 are all coming from verses 18 through 22. Now these are, I'm going to read them again. And these are some of the most difficult. And let me tell you why they're some of the most difficult. It's not because necessarily it's just hard to understand the words on the page. It's easy to understand the words on the page. It's not hard to interpret from that sense. The language is pretty clear. It's not confusing on what it's trying to say. But the question is, or really the difficulty is we don't have enough information. They'd give an example of what I mean by this is actually, this was a perfect example from today, is I come in and All Saints, who owns the building and meets here on Sunday, they're having a penny social fundraiser. And they have these little flyers for a penny social fundraiser. So I'm like, what's a penny social fundraiser? Right, I have no idea what that is. So I pick it up and it tells me the details, but it never tells me what they're fundraising for or what a penny social fundraiser is. And I have to conclude that the people who are reading this know what it is. Meaning they have information outside of this that I don't so that they know what this is. Because per, obviously the person who wrote this only gave the information that is needed, which means that there's information out there that their audience who's reading this knows the information, therefore it's not included on here. However, I don't know that other information. I'm going, well, what are they fundraising for? Right? I know it's $10 a person, but what's that for? What's the fundraiser for? That's the point, is the things that we're going to read here in a second and the things that Peter alludes to, we don't have all this outside information that helps us perfectly answer all the questions. Therefore, I want you to see that my goal tonight is not to miss the forest through the trees. I do think we can accurately and clearly understand what Peter is trying to say, but as we look at some of these specific things, to be honest, I just don't, I don't know. Right, And I'll point those out, and therefore we're not going to get caught in them tonight, at least in this moment, but we can, we're going to allude to them, so we've got to at least understand the parts enough so that we can understand the whole. But feel free to ask me questions afterwards. So let me read it again, and let's dive into it. Verses 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Right? So this last phrase is where things get interesting being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, in the Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So truth number three, the perseverance of sojourners. And the perseverance of sojourners is he brings in to make his point about perseverance, truth three, four, and five will all connect to this passage dealing with Noah. And then he alludes to Noah on a few things. But one of the primary things he alludes to Noah is, when we think about the Noah story, is God gives a command to Noah to build an ark. Right? And, and we trust Scripture, and so we understand that some of these things in our Western naturalistic culture doesn't make sense to the things that are in this text because it's calling for a very supernatural uh, creation. And so in this supernatural understanding of Scripture, there was this command that God was... Hey, Noah, I need you to build an ark because there's going to be this flood. And the flood is going to bring about destruction and all these things. But there's a picture here where he says right here at the end of verse 20, Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. It took Noah a century to build an ark. And through this time and through all these years, there's a picture of God ready to pour out his destruction on sinners But salvation came to a few who persevered with God through this journey in obedience and they were brought to safety. There are three things, truths three, four, and five, that Peter, I believe, is trying to communicate with the Noah story. But one of them, and the first here, in truth number three, is this idea of perseverance. That eight, when they persevered through all of this, they were brought to safety. And in the same way, we or specifically Peter's audience that he's writing to as they are going through suffering, they can trust that in the same way that Noah persevered and God was patient and He showed His grace that as we persevere day after day for the rest of our life, if it is what God wills, then we can persevere as sojourners here on earth. Recognizing Noah was a sojourner in that time. That he was living amongst the people that he was one of the only eight that God deemed righteous enough to carry through and bring safely through the destruction of the flood. That he was patient and he persevered. This will make more sense as we unpack the rest of truth four and five. But truth number four, we see the destruction of sinners. Now how do we see the destruction of sinners? It's brought in with the idea of baptism and what he refers to in the flood. Now, the flood, we think about the flood story. The flood story, let me go to just read Genesis chapter 6, parts of it, because it's going to bring in a few of these allusions that he makes. But in Genesis chapter 6, we see the flood story begin and process and work through. Um, But the flood was ultimately because there was sin all over the earth. Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they were born to children. These were the mighty men who were in the old, and the men of renown. The Lord saw, verse 5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Two things we want to bring out that will help us understand, at least enough of 1 Peter, is that the flood was all about destruction. It was about destroying evil, and it was about destroying sinners. So when Peter is bringing this up, and he's correlating it with baptism, we have to recognize implicitly that he's referring to the destruction of sinners. Now, when we think about baptism even more, we're going to come back to Genesis 6, so if you want to kind of hold on to it, but we're going to go to Romans 6. In Romans 6, uh, Paul, talking about baptism, talks about this as this idea of death. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Let me give you truth number five and it will hopefully all make sense. We see truth number four, destruction of sinners. Truth number five, the salvation of the redeemed. Baptism is a picture. When we do baptism, we, we're literally quoting and referring to Romans 6 that every time we someone, baptize someone, I say, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is uh, Matthew chapter 28. But then, when the moment the person is immersed in water, I say, you're, you're buried in the likeness of Christ's death and you're raised to walk in newness of life. Here's what's important. is for destruction of sinners. The flood is a picture of destruction of sinners. And it says in verse 21, baptism corresponds to this. That baptism, according to the flood and according to Romans 6, is that the moment you are dunked, it is a picture of sin being destroyed and sin being punished. We recognize that baptism, that is redeemed picture though, Because we don't stay under the water. Praise the Lord for that. But we come up. And that's truth number five, the salvation of the redeemed. That we recognize that when the flood came, that because of God's righteous judgment on the earth, that flood covered the waters. There was no coming back up. There was destruction. But Christ bore our sins as sinners... And as those that are of the redeemed, that He bore our sin on the cross. The destruction that you and I deserve, He bore on the cross. So that He died the death that we deserved. He lived the life that we could never live. So that in baptism, which corresponds to this, that in the moment we are dunked in the waters, we are saying that we are dead in our sin. We are dead to sin and we are raised because of Christ's resurrection that you and I are able to come up to the waters. We're able to be the salvation of the redeemed because Christ was saved. And so Peter is communicating that in the same way that there were eight people who found the favor of God, that in the destruction, that through the flood, that they persevered and God showed grace to them and they were saved at the end of it, is that that is a picture to what baptism represents now, which was Christ died once and for all for all of our sins, and was resurrected to life and is the victorious savior hence the main point of the sermon the victorious savior now this phrase baptism which corresponds to this now saves you we talked about this uh, a couple of months ago when we had a baptism service are we saying is peter saying that we are saved in the act of baptism no we're not saved in the act of baptism how do we see this from the text though well, look at the very next phrase. Baptism, which corresponds to this, first of all, correspondence, it's an illustration, it's a picture, now saves you in what? Not the removal of dirt from the body. So it's not the physical act that is happening here that saves us, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is hinged in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not in the baptism act itself, but the baptism act itself corresponds to the flood the destruction the salvation there but it's fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so it's in salvation in Christ that we are saved baptism is simply a picture of that death and that resurrection does this make sense now how we understand a little bit more of what Peter is saying is this phrase in verse 18 which is pretty confusing the end of it saying being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. Now, this is one of those moments. This, this is the penny social fundraiser moment. Um, you, you're telling us it's a penny social fundraiser. You're telling me that Christ went and preached the spirits in prison, but you're not telling me what the fundraiser is, and you're not telling me why Jesus did that there are clearly some questions that we can't answer, but we can answer, in my opinion, I think we can, and, and there's a lot of pen ink has been shed over this, these questions, but I think we can answer who he went and preached to in, in, uh, in prison. This takes me back to Genesis chapter 6. Go back to Genesis chapter 6, back to the flood. Once again, he's connecting the flood, and he says this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, of, of the and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God, which is a reference, uh, uh, clearly, I believe, is a reference to spiritual beings, the sons of God, angel, angelic beings, saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days will be 120 years. Then Nephilim were on the earth in the, those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, those four verses, what, what is that, right? What do you mean the Nephilim? What do you mean angelic beings married earthly human women? What, what, what are you talking about? This is Greek mythology, Right? Sounds like it. And the truth is, we don't have an answer to a lot of these. But we do know that God saw this as a deep wickedness in Jude chapter 6. And 2 Peter tells us that it was these angelic beings that he cast into a prison that was awaiting the destruction in the last time. So Peter, coming back to this here, referring to these spirits in the Noah time, which is referring to Genesis chapter 6 the Nephilim, who were in prison, a spiritual prison, that Christ went and proclaimed to them. Now, it doesn't tell us what He proclaimed to them. But it does intentionally use this language of proclaimed, which is to preach. And any time, every time in the New Testament this Greek word is used, it's in reference to the good news of the Gospel. Here's what I'm speculating a little bit, but taking the evidence that is for us, trying to move away from the tree to get to the forest for a second is I believe what he preached is verse 22. He has gone into heaven and has the right hand of God with other angels. These are, these are non-evil angels, but other angels, authorities, and powers, or all angels, I guess for that matter, powers being subjected to him. I believe he went into the prison and says, I'm the victorious king. I'm resurrected. I'd be speculating a little bit, and the question is, why does this... What does this specific detail have to do with all this? It's a difficult, it's obscure passage to interpret. I'm being honest with you. And I may be wrong on some of these things. However, I believe Peter is writing it to try to communicate the overall point. That you can trust the victorious Savior amidst your suffering. Because in the same way that Noah... Imagine living in a time for a hundred years or building an ark in Genesis chapter 6 which is such an evil and wicked generation that Scripture tells us that God threw specific angels into prison and held them captive because of how wicked they were in that season. No other time in Scripture do we see a specific season in creation where God did that with specific angels. Angels being demons in this moment. Evil, angelic beings. So we recognize that Peter is pulling out Noah in a very wicked and unjust season amidst uh, great sinfulness, was faithful, he persevered, and God was patient with his creation, eventually brought destruction, but brought him as a sojourner and his family a few safely through. Therefore, you too can trust that no matter what you're in, no matter what suffering you're going through, unjust or just, no matter how evil the situation, no matter how broken the world gets and continues to get, no matter how much, whatever, all of this, however you describe, that Christ is victorious and you can trust Him. That When at times finances don't connect, at times when relationships are hurt, at times when you are wrongly or rightly Suffering for something wrongly, meaning you didn't do anything to get there. Or sometimes we suffer for our own consequences, our own things we do. But we can trust that through all of this, because of Christ, because of His victory, we can trust Him. Now Peter here, even though he's saying some things that at times can be difficult for us to interpret now, he didn't give the details because it's believed that his original audience would have understood what he was saying. In the same way that people read this... Some people read this flyer and know exactly what a penny social fundraiser is. Therefore, they didn't have to say anything else. I believe that if we weren't 2,000 years removed from the writing of this, the original audience fully understood the Jewish culture, fully would have understood the Jewish uh, allegory that's being used here, the, the specific facts, and they would have understood that Peter is basically throwing down the biggest hammer and saying no matter how difficult the situation or how evil or how wicked or how unjust it is, You can trust Christ because he suffered for you also and was resurrected and now he's at the right hand of the Father and all authority is subject to him. Therefore, you can trust him. No matter how bad it gets, it got bad for Noah. It got so bad that these evil angelic beings were thrown into prison. But guess what? Christ went and told them, hey, guess what, guys, I won. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. You can trust him. He's worthy to be trusted. And so although we don't understand and I don't understand honestly some of the individual trees with, or the individual statements within this fully, I think when we take a step back and look at it, I think the picture is pretty clear that he is making it just loud and clear that no matter what it happens, no matter what you're going through, that you can trust Christ. Why? Because he's gone to the depths and the depths of evil and destruction. He has taken on all of that suffering, and he has won. We get this? Do we get that no matter what we're going through, when it's like Joseph, imagine Joseph, to go back to that story for a second, imagine Joseph. He sold into slavery. He just got done having a dream that he would be king over his brothers. And so he tells them, haha, I'm your king. I may be the youngest, but I'm the boss. He had one younger, so don't fact check me on that later. We had one younger. But he was pretty much the, he was the little guy. And he goes and tells his brothers, I'm going to be king, and all of a sudden gets sold into slavery. And go, well, I guess I'm not really going to be king. And then years and years and years passed on in the prison. He's trying to live for God, and it doesn't all make sense. Then one day, ah, I get it. And I'm not to say that one day the suffering is going to end up with you being king or president or whatever high position you can think of. I'm not saying it's going to always end up in you being power or all these things. But what I am saying is that it is a promise and a guarantee that you will end up being the victorious son of the victorious king. Does that make sense? That, that you will, it's a guarantee that all of this, that as it's happening, there's a promise of victory because the one who owns you is victorious overall, And therefore we can trust him. So I want to encourage us, and I'm closing, and I'm saying this, and there's simply my closing question is, do you trust him? We read Psalm sixty-three, and that last, "My soul, my soul, my soul." The third one, "My soul clings to you." And like I said, I, I, I gave the illustration, a picture of, in moments when my kids are scared, or in moments they're terrified, or whatever, in moments of desperation, they come and just grab onto me for dear life. They grab my legs, they grab my necks, they whatever they can grab, they just hang onto it. It is it's this picture of desperation. And the truth is, in moments of desperation, we cling to the thing that we trust most. And the question is, is that a victorious Savior? Or is it money? Or is it happiness? Or is it something else? And the challenge for you simply tonight is, do you trust Jesus? Do you cling to Him? Do you trust Him, and do you recognize that He is worthy of your trust? you're in here tonight and I want to give this appeal always if you're in here tonight and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior would you trust him tonight would you see that he is good that he is holy that he is just that he is sovereign would you see that he faced the waters of destruction Uh, uh, the picture of Noah where he took the righteous took on the sin of the unrighteous he died so we don't have to face that destruction but he was resurrected to life so that we could be resurrected to life also Do you see that that's a gift that He offers you? Would you trust Him? Would you give your life to Him? And for the believers in the room, would you trust Him? Kind of the same, right? Today, would you trust Him? To walk with Him today, no matter your situation, would you trust Him? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're a King worthy of trust. I'm so grateful that I face this world recognizing that I have a a very, very privileged life the most in this world. But yet, still, I find myself recognizing that I can't trust anything in this world for salvation. But I can trust you. And so I I don't want to be coy here, but I recognize that there are many who suffer way worse than I ever have or probably ever will. But I still recognize that I need you. That we all need you. And so I don't want to just simplify someone else's situation that may be more difficult to mine. It's easy for me to say it's easy to trust Him when when I may be in an easy situation currently, but the point is still the same. I recognize there's nothing in this world that I can trust, that I can cling to for salvation but You. And so I pray that for this room, that everybody in this room would recognize and be able to say honestly from their heart, my soul, from the depths of my being, cling to You, God. There's nothing else I can cling to. That I can trust the victorious Savior amidst my suffering, amidst my pain, amidst my joy even. No matter what you fill in the end of the sentence with, amidst whatever it is, I can trust the Savior because He is victorious over all. He's victorious over my suffering. He's victorious over my sin. He's victorious over my death. Therefore, I can trust Him. So, Jesus, I pray that this would be a room full of people who trust you. Would you help us in our lack of trust? Would you just take a moment, just between you and God, would you talk to him? Would you be honest with him? Would you be honest enough to go, God, I'm, I'm struggling to trust you? He knows what's in your hearts. It's really just being honest with yourself when you speak it to him. Would you be honest? About it? I'm struggling to trust. I'm struggling to trust you with this situation or that situation. Would you be honest enough to say, God, I- I'm doubting some things about you even? I-, I just need you to help me in my unbelief. Would you be honest enough to say that you're angry with him about something? I can imagine Joseph was ang- I imagine Joseph sitting in prison going, come on, God, we've got to have a conversation about this. I can imagine, I know personally, I'm angry because I don't understand. Would you be honest with yourself and with him that you're angry about something? But you're Not understand. Would you be honest about, with him about it? Those are all negative examples, but what about positive? Just thank him and worship him. Just spend the time and be honest with him. I'm going to ask Charles to lead us in worship, but I just want to encourage you just to stay where you are. Sing if you want to sing. Stand if you want to stand. But let your default in this time just be a conversation one-on-one between you and God. Just talk to Him. And when I encourage you, would you walk out of that conversation saying, God, I trust You. I trust You with my life. Or would you just spend time with Him and ask Him to help you get to that point where you cling to Him like a child clings to a loving Father.